Chapter Two of *The Masquerader* by Catherine Cecil Thompson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two. On the morning following the night of fog, Chilcot woke at nine. He woke at the moment that his man Allsop tiptoed across the room and laid the salver with his early cup of tea on the table beside the bed. For several seconds he lay with his eyes shut. The effort of opening them on a fresh day the intimate certainty of what he would see on opening them, seemed to weigh his lids. The heavy, half-closed curtains, the blinds severely drawn, the great room with its splendid furniture, its sober colouring, its scent of damp London weather. Above all, Allsop, silent, respectful, and respectable, were things to dread. A full minute passed while he still feigned to sleep. He heard Allsop stir discreetly, then the inevitable information broke the silence. Nine o'clock, sir. He opened his eyes, murmured something, and closed them again. The man moved to the window, quietly pulled back the curtains, and half drew the blind. Better night, sir, I hope, he ventured softly. Chilcott had drawn the bedclothes over his face to screen himself from the daylight, murky though it was. Yes, he responded, those beastly nightmares didn't trouble me for once. He shivered a little, as at some recollection. "'But don't talk. Don't remind me of them. I hate a man who has no originality.' He spoke sharply. At times he showed an almost childish irritation over trivial things. Alsop took the remark in silence. Crossing the white room, he began to lay out his master's clothes. The action affected Chilcott to fresh annoyance. "'Confound it!' he said. "'I'm sick of that routine.' I can see you laying out my winding-sheet the day of my burial. Leave those things. Come back in half an hour. Allsop allowed himself one glance at his master's figure huddled in the great bed. Then, laying aside the coat he was holding, he moved to the door. With his fingers on the handle, he paused. Will you breakfast in your own room, sir, or downstairs? Chilcott drew the clothes more tightly round his shoulders. Oh, anywhere, nowhere, he said. I don't care. Orsop softly withdrew. Left to himself, Chilcott sat up in bed and lifted the salver to his knees. The sudden movement jarred him physically. He drew a handkerchief from under the pillow and wiped his forehead. Then he held his hand to the light and studied it. The hand looked sallow and unsteady. With a nervous gesture, he thrust the salver back upon the table and slid out of bed. Moving hastily across the room, he stopped before one of the tall wardrobes and swung the door open. Then, after a furtive glance around the room, he thrust his hand into the recesses of a shelf and fumbled there. The thing he sought was evidently not hard to find, for almost at once he withdrew his hand and moved from the wardrobe to a table beside the fireplace, carrying a small glass tube filled with tabloids. On the table were a decanter, a siphon, and a water-jug. Mixing some whisky, he uncorked the tube. Again he glanced apprehensively towards the door, then with a very nervous hand dropped two tabloids into the glass. While they dissolved, he stood with his hand on the table and his eyes fixed on the floor, evidently restraining his impatience. Instantly they had disappeared, he seized the glass and drained it at a draught, replaced the bottle in the wardrobe, and, shivering slightly in the raw air, slipped back into bed. When Allsop returned, he was sitting up, a cigarette between his lips, the teacup standing empty on the salver. The nervous irritability had gone from his manner. He no longer moved jerkily. His eyes looked brighter. 
his pale skin more healthy. "'Ah, Alsop,' he said, "'there are some moments in life, after all, it, it isn't all blank wall.' "'I ordered breakfast in the small morning-room, sir,' said Alsop, without a change of expression. Chilcott breakfasted at ten. His appetite, always fickle, was particularly uncertain in the early hours. He helped himself to some fish, but sent away his plate untouched. Then, having drunk two cups of tea, he pushed back his chair, lighted a fresh cigarette, and shook out the morning's newspaper. Twice he shook it out, and twice turned it, but the reluctance to fix his mind upon it made him dally. The effect of the morphia tabloids was still apparent in the greater steadiness of his hand and eye, the regrained quiet of his susceptibilities, but the respite was temporary and lethargic. The early days, the days of six years ago, when these tabloids meant an even sweep of thought, lucidity of brain, a balance of judgment in thought and effort, were days of the past. As he had said of Lexington and his vice, the slave had become master. As he folded the paper in a last attempt at interest, the door opened and his secretary came a step or two into the room. "'Good morning, sir,' he said. "'Forgive me for being so untimely.' He was a fresh-mannered, bright-eyed boy of twenty-three. His breezy alertness, his deference, as to a man who had attained what he had aspired to, amused and depressed Chilcott by turns. "'Good morning, Blessington. What is it now?' he sighed through habit, and putting up his hand, warded off a ray of sun that had forced itself through the misty atmosphere as if by mistake. The boy smiled. "'It's the business of the Walk Timber Contract, sir,' he said. "'You promised you'd look into it today. "'You know you've shelved it for a week already, "'and Craig Burnage are rather clamouring for an answer.' "'He moved forward and laid the papers he was carrying "'on the table beside Chilcott. "'I'm sorry to be such a nuisance,' he added. "'I hope your nerves aren't worrying you today.' "'Chilcott was toying with the papers. "'At the word nerves, he glanced up suspiciously, "'but Lessington's ingenuous face satisfied him. "'No,' he said, "'I settled my nerves last night with uh, with a bromide. "'I knew that fog would upset me unless I took precautions.' "'I'm glad of that, sir, though I'd avoid bromides. "'Bad habits to set up. "'But this walk business, I'd like to get it under way, if you have no objection.' "'Chilcott passed his fingers over the papers. "'Were you out in that fog last night, Blessington?' "'No, sir. I supped with some people at the Savoy, and we just missed it. "'It was very partial, I believe.' "'So I believe.' Blessington put his hand to his neat tie and pulled it. He was extremely polite, but he had an inordinate sense of duty. Uh, "'Forgive me, sir,' he said, "'but about that contract, I'm, I know it's a frightful bore.' "'Oh, the contract,' Chilcott looked about him absently. "'By the way, did you see anything of my wife yesterday? What did she do last night?' "'Mrs. Chilcott gave me tea yesterday afternoon. She told me she was dining at Lady Sabinet's.' "'and looking in at one or two places later.' "'He eyed his papers in Chilcott's listless hand. "'Chilcott smiled satirically. "'Eve is very true to society,' he said. "'I couldn't dine at the Sabinets if it was to make me premier. "'They have a butler who is an institution, a sort of heirloom in the family. "'He is fat and breathes audibly. "'Last time I lunched there he haunted me for a whole night.' "'Blessington laughed gaily. "'Mrs. Chilcott doesn't see ghosts, sir,' he said. "'But if I may suggest—' Chilcott tapped his fingers on the table. "'No, Eve doesn't see ghosts. We rather miss sympathy there.' 
Blessington governed his impatience. He stood still for some seconds, then glanced down at his pointed boot. "'If you will be lenient to my persistency, sir, I would like to remind you—' Chilcott lifted his head with a flash of irritability. "'Confound it, Blessington!' he exclaimed. "'Am I never to be left in peace? Am I never to sit down to a meal without having work thrust upon me? Work, work, perpetually work! I've heard no other word in the last six years. I declare there are times—' He rose suddenly from his seat and turned to the window. "'There are times when I feel that for sixpence I'd chuck it all, the whole beastly round.' Startled by his vehemence, Blessington wheeled towards him. "'Not your political career, sir.' There was a moment in which Chilcott hesitated, a moment in which the desire that had filled his mind for months rose to his lips and hung there. Then the question, the incredulity in Blessington's face, chilled it, and it fell back into silence. "'I didn't say that,' he murmured. "'You young men jump to conclusions, Blessington.' "'Forgive me, sir, I never meant to imply retirement. Why, Rickshaw, Vale, Cresham, and the whole walk crowd would be about your ears like flies, if such a thing were even breathed. Now more than ever since these Persian rumours. By the way, is there anything real in this border business? The St. George's came out rather strong last night.' Chilcott had moved back to the table. His face was pale from his outburst and his fingers toyed restlessly with the open newspaper. Uh, "'I haven't seen the St. George's,' he said hastily. "'Lakely is always ready to shake the red rag when Russia is concerned. Whether we are to enter the arena is another matter. But what about Craig Burnage? I think you mentioned something of a contract.' "'Oh, don't worry about that, sir.' Blessington had caught the twitching at the corners of Chilcott's mouth, the nervous sharpness of his voice. "'I can put Craig Burnage off. If I have an answer by Thursday it will be time enough.' He began to collect his papers, but Chilcott stopped him. "'Wait,' he said, veering suddenly. "'Wait, I'll, I'll see to it now. I'll feel more myself when I've done something. I'll come with you to the study.' He walked hastily across the room. Then, with his hand on the door, he paused. "'You go first, Blessington,' he said. "'I'll, I'll follow you in ten minutes. I, I must glance through the newspapers first. Blessington looked uncertain. "'You won't forget, sir?' "'Forget? Of course not.' Still doubtfully, Blessington left the room and closed the door. Once alone, Chilcott walked slowly back to the table, drew up his chair, and sat down with his eyes on the white cloth, the paper lying unheeded beside him. Time passed. A servant came into the room to remove the breakfast. Chilcott moved slightly when necessary, but otherwise retained his attitude. The servant, having finished his task, replenished the fire and left the room. Chilcott still sat on. At last, feeling numbed, he rose and crossed to the fireplace. The clock on the mantelpiece stared him in the face. He looked at it, started slightly, then drew out his watch. Watch and clock corresponded. Each marked twelve o'clock. With a nervous motion, he leaned forward and pressed the electric bell long and hard. Instantly a servant answered. "'Is Mr. Blessington in the study?' Chilcott asked. "'He was there, sir, five minutes back.' Chilcock looked relieved. "'All right. Tell him I have gone out. Had to go out. Something important. You understand?' "'I understand, sir.' But before the words had been properly spoken, Chilcott had passed the man and walked into the hall. End of chapter 2